Have you tried the Jigsaw Electrolyte Supreme yet? It replenishes minerals, B vitamins, and electrolytes that are lost daily through sweat, urination, occasional diarrhea, and exercise. A Live and La Vida low-carb show listener named Trisha writes, I listened to your podcast on the iPhone app and have enjoyed your sponsor, Jigsaw Health, where you talked about the electrolytes, lemon lime, for $10 off with coupon code LLVLC. My feet and legs cramp up often, even though LC HF two and a half years, and then keto half year after that for three years total eating well. I wondered if the electrolytes would help, so I used your coupon code. First night of drinking the mixture all day, no cramps, slept well, and every night since. Just reordered the three-pack this time, saving more money and using your code once again. Thank you, it really tastes good and works great. I use twice the amount of water they suggest, or it's too sweet for me, so I put a scoop in 16 ounces or half a scoop in eight ounces instead of one in eight. So join Trisha, get Jigsaw Electrolyte Supreme, head on over to lowcarbelectrolytes.com and definitely use the coupon code LLVLC at checkout to save $10 off of your order. Again, it's called Jigsaw Electrolyte Supreme. If you love great olive oil, do I have a deal for you? As one of my listeners, you're entitled to receive for $1, listen to this, for just $1, a $39 bottle of one of the world's finest artisanal olive oils. And what makes this oil really special? It was just fresh pressed at the new harvest, so it's bursting with more harvest fresh flavor than any olive oil you've ever tasted. It's yours for just one buck to help cover shipping as your introduction to the Fresh Pressed Olive Oil Club. And there's no obligation to buy anything now or ever. But what exactly is fresh pressed olive oil? And why is it so much more flavorful than store-bought olive oil? The problem with store-bought olive oils is that they can sit on store shelves for months, even years, growing stale or even rancid. The olive, after all, is a fruit. And olive oil is similar to a fruit juice in that it's much more flavorful when fresh pressed. And that's what's unique about oils from my friends at the Fresh Pressed Olive Oil Club. They rush their oils direct to your door by plane and special delivery truck straight from the latest harvest. This means that you, your family, and lucky guests can enjoy top-of-the-line artisanal olive oils at their peak of harvest-fresh flavor and nutritional value. This is great news for us low-carb lovers because pure, fresh-pressed olive oil has zero carbs. Zero carbs! It adds whole layers of amazing flavor to your favorite low-carb dishes, your roasted vegetables, healthy salads, grilled meats, delicate fish, toasted nuts. Oh yeah! I can tell you from personal experience, once you try this fresh-pressed olive oil, you'll never go back to store-bought again. Try it yourself and see. For your 39 bottle for a buck, go to jimmyoliveoil.com. That's jimmyoliveoil.com. One more time jimmyoliveoil.com Coming up in episode 1289 an LLVLC classic with Professor Tim Noakes 
connecting and educating and making the world a more informed and healthier place. You're listening to the Live in La Vida Low Carb Show with Jimmy Moore. You've helped change so many lives and give us all the courage to take on the rest of the world. This is the longest running health podcast on the air today. You've done so much to spread the word about how diet matters. Over 1,000 episodes strong and counting. The amount of lives that you've changed at this point is incalculable. And now, here's our host and international best-selling author. You're like the LL Cool J of podcasting. Jimmy Moore. Hey guys, today we're going to start a brand new feature on Tuesdays for the next few months. We're going to feature an LLVLC classic episode. As you know, I've been doing this for a very long time and there's some really good interviews from the history of the Livin' La Vida Low Carb Show. So why not pull them back out and let you hear some of these classic episodes? And today we start with the interview I did with Professor Tim Noakes, who has gone on to great success in the country of South Africa. And when I interviewed him many years ago, uh, he was kind of just getting off the ground and now he has really taken the world by storm. So I think it's really interesting to hear what it was like for him in the early days. It now gives context to what he's going through here today in 2017. So without further delay, here is an LLVLC classic episode featuring Professor Tim Noakes. Welcome back to the Living La Vida Low Carb Show with Jimmy Moore. And today I am so pleased to welcome to the podcast a gentleman by the name of Timothy Noakes. He is a South African professor of exercise and sports science at the University of Cape Town. He has run more than 70 marathons and ultra marathons. He's the author of a pretty popular running book. Uh, I believe it came out in 1991 called The Lore of Running. And he is here today to help dispel a lot of the myths that are out there about uh, marathon runners and especially how they need to be uh, fueling themselves in order to run in such races. Professor Noakes, welcome to the show. Thank you very much, Jimmy. I'm very honored to be on your show. Well, it's an honor to have you, sir. And I have heard about your great work from many people They were like, man, you have to get this guy on your show. He's doing some really good work in South Africa. And I was like, okay. So I took a look at uh, all the things that you've done. You really have quite the pedigree uh, and background to speak authoritatively on this subject. So thank you for being here. Can you tell us a little more about your interest in sports science and exercise and and how all that kind of started? Indeed. When I started my medical training, I immediately got into endurance sports. I started rowing at the time, and I started running as part of that, and I immediately realized that that was my real interest, and it was kind of as interesting to And so for my six years of medical training, I was doing a lot of sport, ran the ultramarathons, and really fell in love with running. Mm-hmm. And all mm-hmm. the time that I was being educated, I was looking at what was the sports side of the medicine. So I was interested in sports medicine. And I was also, I discovered I was much more interested in doing the research rather than simply learning the textbooks. So after I'd finished my degree, I went, did my internship in the hospital and that made me convinced that I was much more interested in doing research. Right. And right. So I was really committed to trying to do things that others weren't doing. At the time in South African medicine and in fact in global medicine, it became apparent to me that we were spending an inordinate amount of money treating patients, many of whom were chronically ill, and we weren't really looking at trying to prevent the diseases. In addition, when I got injured and went to speak to the orthopedic surgeons with my running injuries, they really weren't interested and they couldn't help me. 
And so I realized that if you were an athlete, you didn't get proper care. So I decided that there are so many good doctors looking after sick people. My job would be to try to make people healthy and also to try to help the athletes and apply proper modern medicine and modern science to, to athletic populations. So when so, does the uh, change to nutrition uh, happen or, or I guess the focus on nutrition, when did that come into play? Well, when I first, I first wrote Law of Running and I started writing in 1981 and at that time we started doing studies of muscle carbohydrate metabolism and in fact our first research was of carbohydrate metabolism during exercise because we perfected techniques for measuring where the carbohydrate was going when you ingested it either before or during exercise and we became really pretty good at doing that. And at the time, of course, everyone believed that carbohydrates were central to exercise performance and the more carbohydrate you could burn, the faster you would run right. and the better you would run. So I was tied into that, that dogma. And when I wrote the next edition of Law of Running and then updated it, in fact, in 2001, we were still committed to the carbohydrate dogma that carbohydrate is crucial for human exercise performance and that you needed to take in oodles of carbohydrate both before and during exercise. And we had reduced exercise performance to one variable, muscle glycogen. And when you ran out of muscle glycogen, supposedly that was the end of your race. So the more you had at the start and the slower you burned it, the further you could run. And I was totally committed to that view and never thought otherwise, except I went back and looked at my 1996 lecture at the American College of Sports Medicine and it was the J.B. Wolf lecture. And I see there, I actually said, hold on, I'm not so sure you need to take so much carbohydrate for training. I said, the evidence is not clear that you have to have a high carbohydrate diet to maximize your performance during training. And I'd really forgotten about until December 2010 when I decided that I would like to become thinner and I'd like to start running properly again. And I, by chance, received a, an email advert for the book by Drs. Volek and Westman entitled The New Atkins for the New You. Mm -hmm. And I went and bought it. What it said was lose six kilograms in six weeks without hunger. And I said, well, of course, that's bogus. We know that can't happen. I'm a medical <laughs> doctor. <laughs> I'm a medical doctor. I know if you want to lose weight, it's hard work and you've got to get hungry and disciplined and all this nonsense. So I said, these guys are bogus. But then I immediately saw, sorry, I, I said that the title's bogus. But then I saw who it was and I respected them as scientists. I knew that they'd done good scientific work. In fact, I didn't know how much good work they'd done. I'd, but I knew that in the 80s, when we were studying fat metabolism, they were also studying it and I knew they were proper scientists. So I went and bought the book and, I, and within an hour, I said, my goodness, I never knew there was so much evidence on low-carbohydrate eating. Yeah. I never knew such a good science. It was completely hidden to me. I had never, ever, ever been exposed to it anywhere in anything I'd read. It was completely hidden. So I then went on the diet and it was just miraculous. I lost buckets of weight and my running came back. And I just, I couldn't believe it. And I didn't originally want to make a fuss of it. But eventually I thought, well, I must write an article on this. And so I wrote an article in a popular magazine and it was titled Against the Grains. And I began by saying, this will be the most controversial article I ever write in my life. And of course it was. <laughs> People went ballistic when they saw it, particularly the profession who provide nutritional advice to athletes and, and normal people. Right. 
And then the next thing that happened was it then went quiet. So there was a there was backlash, and everyone said, "I'm the lunatic fringe," and how can you say this rubbish, etc., etc., etc. And then it went absolutely quiet. But the next thing that happened was six months later, one of the top radio hosts in South Africa was a very good athlete himself, played international rugby. He phoned me and he said, "Listen, I'm I'm reading what you're saying here, and it completely conflicts with what's written in Law of Running." He says, you completely reversed your opinion. So what must I tell my people that listen to me? <laughs> must I tell them you're right or you're wrong? You better come on the program and explain. So I got on the program and I explained what had happened and that I now thought carbohydrates were overrated and for some people they were frankly toxic. In my case, they were toxic. Because mm-hmm. I discovered that I was profoundly carbohydrate intolerant and pre-diabetic. And of course, my dad died of diabetes. My uncle died of diabetes. And so he interviewed me, and then it just went ballistic. And within a few weeks, all of South Africa was talking about it, about this new concept of this new diet. And, you know, I don't want to under, underestimate, but literally, the, the main topic of conversation in polite society in South Africa became, what should you be eating? Wow. And so when anyone went out to dinner, they said, oh, have you heard about Nox's diet and so on? So the next thing that happened was I had written my autobiography called Challenging Beliefs and it was released in September. And the publisher said, you know, it's doing really well, but we think it could do even better if we just changed the cover a bit and just did a few other things. And they said, would you like to add anything? I said, yes, I've got a chapter on nutrition. I have to add a chapter on nutrition. <laughs> so I wrote all my experiences and, and I, it came down to about probably 60 or 70 pages and it was put in as another chapter and the book sales just it was just they couldn't publish the book quick enough because everyone was looking for something and they they found this book please understand this is just an explanation of why people have to seriously consider that fat is not bad for you fat is probably very good for you and that for many of us carbohydrate is not good and that book has just gone mad and and i just i cannot keep up with the emails i can't keep up with the invitations to speak i'm speaking two or three times a week different audience and they're all the same. I, I give them roughly the same talk, and they just go ballistic. They said, but why haven't we been told this information before? Now, Tim, that's very interesting because uh, Atkins has been out there for decades now. Uh, has it not been as popular in South Africa as it has in, in other parts of the world? No, it absolutely hasn't. And really? One of the points people... When you say, well, they say, well, actually, I did go on Atkins diet, you know, 10 years ago, and I lost 10 kilograms, but then people told me I'm going to die to stay on Atkins diet, so I right. stopped eating. And what the difference is that now a scientist who's got some credibility in South Africa has got up and said, listen, Atkins diet's fine. And I'm that I personally am on it. And, you know, what's interesting, my, my, my sister clearly also quite intolerant. And she's been on the start for more than 30 years. <laughs> she never told me. Wow. <laughs> she was probably one of the first South Africans who ever went on the Atkins diet in the 1960s because she also found that, that carbohydrates were not good for her and that she put on weight when she ate carbohydrates. And she's been eating it for, as I said, for more than 30 years now, nearly 40 years. Well, and I think we're seeing a worldwide shift uh, towards fat not being as bad for you as once thought and carbohydrates being the real culprit in a lot of these chronic diseases and obesity. Uh, I'm thinking of what's happening in Sweden right now with the LCHF movement. Are you familiar with that? 
Yes, I've definitely followed that. Yeah, yeah so it's, it's, uh, it's very encouraging to see that there are pockets of things happening. I mean, the Noakes diet in South Africa, you know, is really kind of revolutionizing the way people think uh, about food and what they're putting in their mouth. It, it's a good thing. Exactly. And uh, we've got so much support. The editor of the South African Medical Journal is on the start <laughs> and he's loving it. Wow. He said he's going to push it as hard. The dean of our medical faculty is on it, and she's very happy with it. And about three professors have lost significant amounts of weight. So we're hoping to change this medical school. So with, with all these changes, uh, is anybody trying to influence the government there and say, hey, maybe we should try to, because uh, I'm assuming that the government in South Africa is probably similar to what it is around the world where they kind of make these nutritional mandates, um, how people should be eating, and it's just the opposite of what you're teaching. Yeah, that's a great point. Uh, one of our senior politicians is, in fact, a non-independent non diabetic, and he wrote to me, and his name is uh, Gacha Butelezi, and he wrote, and he said, listen, I'm a diabetic. I've been on a low-carbohydrate diet for 30 years. I'm now 80. I'm in fantastic shape. I've got no complications. And he said South Africa has to decide what is the correct diet. Yes, yes. And the president's wife, in fact, one of his wives, heads up an anti-diabetes grouping, and that's her foundation. And he challenged her to say, right, what is the appropriate diet? And of course, South Africa has more poorer people than the United States. And the obesity and diabetes epidemic is, has hit them hardest. And we really have to address the problem there. And and again, just to make the point that all of you are making is that, that obesity is a disease of poverty. It's the poor people who are eating the worst diets. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And in South Africa, the poor people eat cola drinks, white sugar, and white flour. That's what they live on. And we absolutely have to address that. And, and one of the professors who has adapted to the diet is, in fact, the professor of health economics at UCT, at the University of Cape Town. And she has said what we have to do is find ways of producing protein and fats for poor people that is not expensive. Hmm. And, and we've already discovered that there's so much good protein and good fat that's thrown away at the abattoirs. And that in South Africa, the cheapest food is kidneys. Remarkably cheaper <laughs> than carbohydrate. <laughs> because they're being thrown away and no one's eating them. So you're quite right. The movement is, so, is developing, getting such a momentum in this country that I don't think it can be ignored forever. And let's hope that government does do something constructive in due course. Now, I'm wondering what the response is like from the registered dietitians and other health experts out there that aren't too keen on low carb. Are, there, are they speaking out? Indeed. I think there was an effort to have me thrown off the medical register. <laughs> <laughs> has happened in Sweden, but I would be able to say, listen, don't bother, because the Swedes have gone through it and they decided you couldn't, it was perfectly safe to prescribe the high-fat diets. You couldn't throw people off who were doing it. So, yes, the most resistance has become from, from the dietitians. The second group who've really taken me on are the vegans and the vegetarians. No. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Can't imagine and, that. Yeah. And the third group is the diabetologists and the endocrinologists, yeah. which I found very interesting. And they actually posted a, something on the internet saying that my ideas were very dangerous for diabetics and the diabetics must continue to eat high-carbohydrate diets. Hmm. 
that's in the whole the whole point about my book is saying that I discovered I'm pre-diabetic and I had to go on a high-fat diet, and how effective it was was. Well, every day, I mean, I read letters as I know you do from diabetics saying, "Thank goodness, thank you for telling me I've cut my insulin dramatically, or I've cut, cut my metformin or my other drugs dramatically, or I've completely stopped using them." Right. And the diabetic control is so much easier. And, and incidentally, I, I came across a paper recently showing that in diabetes, the problem is the liver is producing so much glucose, and that's what our diabetologists don't understand. They're just trying to give in to get rid of the glucose. They forget that these patients are producing more glucose than they need. Oh, and they produce oh glucose but you need high. the glucose for energy, Tim. Don't you know that? <laughs> <laughs> There's some really wacky kind of ideas that are put out there. And it's astonishing. And and you know what's interesting? Of course, I promoted Gary Torbs' book, and I've I bought thousands of copies to give to friends and patients and so on. Yep. And but dietitians, and they won't read them. Hmm. But but I might add that that Gary's book and also the Atkins book have are, are selling very very well. They've they've become bestsellers in this country as well. I can imagine. <laughs> After so, so, so that's it's been great. The people really are reading and. What I've learned, as I've indicated, you know, I, I was, I, I gave two, two talks last week and, and this week I've already given two talks in other cities in Cape Town, in South Africa. And the, the, the positive vibe is just, it's overwhelming. And people are just, they so clearly want to this message. They're so ready for it that I really believe we've reached a tipping point. And through the work of people like yourself, we're going to tip the world very soon. Well, and, and I certainly hold that same optimism that uh, people are changing. And it's thanks to people like you who are championing the cause. You know, we need to have more people who have these revelations. Now, I want to back up just a minute to the 1980s sure. again, when you were kind of researching this and you were still stuck in the carbohydrate paradigm, uh, especially for long distance um, uh, exercise, endurance exercise. Um, one of the co-authors on the new Atkins for a New You uh, is Dr. Steve Finney. And Dr. Yeah. Finney was the one that did this study way back in the early 80s looking at marathon runners or bicyclists um, and seeing their endurance. And they did this test for two weeks and found, you know, hey, they, uh, they're performing horribly doing this. We need to give up. But they decided to go one more week. And that's when he found out that the cyclists could become keto adapted uh, after a couple weeks. Uh, yeah. Were you aware of that information when you were doing your research in the 80s? Yes, because we also did fat adapto fat loading studies. Right. And one of our most quoted studies is, in fact, by Vicki Lambert. And more recently, we did another study where we had guys cycle for eight hours after being fat adapted. Mm -hmm. And there was clear evidence for benefit in some people. But because our numbers were small and one person did the reverse, they did very badly on the diet. They, that destroyed the findings. But, uh, you know, what, what is so funny? I was reminded of this a month ago when Paula Newby-Fraser came to Cape Town. Now, Paula started doing the Ironman in the 1980s, and I helped her quite a lot. And, in fact, she told me, she said, Tim, you were the greatest inspiration to me in my career. She's considered the greatest triathlete of all time. She won the Hawaiian Ironman eight times, and she won 28 Ironman races. Wow. And she, wow. was, she was ranked the triathlete of the millennium. That's how good she was. She said, mm -hmm. Tim, mm -hmm. I was eating paleo diets in the 1980s. <laughs> 
And she said, you agreed and you promoted it. Well, of course, I don't remember that because how could I have? I was writing the opposite in Law of Running. But what happened was she wrote to me and she said, Tim, how do I fat adapt myself? And is it okay to be fat adapted? And I said, oh, of course, you know, the chaps you mentioned, Finney and uh, Volek, Steve Volek have, have done the work, Jeff Volek have done the work. And I said, no, absolutely, you know, you, all you do is you do more fat. But I didn't say restrict carbohydrate, I just, you see, which I didn't understand at the time. Right. I said, just eat more fat, and then you'll become fat adapted. I didn't understand the carbohydrate restriction. And that's exactly what she did, but she did restrict the carbohydrates. And she told me that she won all those Ironman races, never taking any carbohydrate during the races. <laughs> <laughs> she ate oils, nuts, and what we call biltong or jerky in South Africa. And I said, Paula, why did you do it? She said, well, I came from Zimbabwe and I was brought up on meat on the farm. We just ate meat. And that when you were hungry, you ate biltong or, or jerky, the dried meat. And she said, when I started doing triathlons, I couldn't understand why for the last three days before an Ironman would you want to put all this stuff into your gut which you never use. I've got to go nine hours without going to the toilet. I don't want to have all this rubbish in my gut. And she found it worked. And then she told me, Mark Allen did exactly the same. And Mark Allen was the greatest male triathlete of, the, of that generation. He was coached by Phil Maffetone. And in Phil Maffetone's book, he talks about fat adapting and cutting carbohydrates. So the two greatest Ironman triathletes of all time <laughs> yeah. were eating high protein, high fat, and restricting their carbohydrate intakes. Isn't that amazing? Yeah, and I didn't know that at the time. And, and, and Tim, I, I bet you a bunch of the elite athletes that are out there today, and we're going to see a bunch of them in the Olympics this summer, a bunch of them, I can almost guarantee, are eating this way, but they will never reveal their their secret because they, they want to keep that one up on their competitors. <laughs> that's really interesting. That's that's fascinating point. Yeah. And I just assumed that they wouldn't tell anyone because they would be like that. But you're probably right. And you know, there's a, there's a lovely video clip somewhere. I think it's on YouTube when Mark Allen is being interviewed and he's asked, so what do you have to do during the Ironman? And he said, no, well, you just pace yourself properly and you win the race. <laughs> so then the interviewer says, well, what about carbohydrates? So, so Mark Allen says, oh, gosh, I nearly forgot. Aren't I meant to say that you've got to eat all these carbs as well? <laughs> Oops. <laughs> That's funny. Yeah. So have you read the new Volick Finney book called The Art and Science of Low-Carbohydrate Performance? They did a low-carbohydrate living one. But they did a follow-up one, which will be especially of interest to you if you've not seen it, uh, The Art and Science of Low-Carbohydrate Performance, where they kind of get into a lot of these things about keto adaptation and how you can perform eating this way and know you won't have issues not having carbohydrates. Have you seen that book? They very kindly sent me a copy. And we're actually just now drawing up protocols to start doing these studies. So they were very, very helpful. They, unfortunately, of course, a lot of the work has already been done, but we are going to start doing repeating some of the work. Yes. And yes. we'll be sending the protocols to them to indicate to them this is what we're doing. Could they help advise us on that? So what's happened in South Africa is now all of a sudden there is a group of Ironman triathletes who are keto-adapted. Super, and, super. And we're going to be studying them. But we're looking only at the ones who are profoundly keto-adapted, who eat almost no carbohydrates and who definitely take no carbohydrates during the race. And what I'm trying to show 
is that you don't need carbohydrates to generate glucose in the liver. So we're going to be studying liver glucose production and to show that these people can generate more than enough glucose for, for 8 or 10 or 15 hours of the Ironman and maintain their blood glucose at a perfectly normal level. And if they can do that, then any diabetic can do it as well. And the glucose from gluconeogenesis is, suffices? That's correct. Well, what we, what we do know is one of the two of the patients, sorry, the athletes who have adapted, we ask them, please monitor your glucose during, these, during a prolonged exercise. And the one lady went 12 hours and she couldn't drop her glucose without taking any glucose. Wow. Cycling and running. And she couldn't drop her glucose. And eventually after, uh, sorry, it was about 11 hours. After 11 hours, she dropped it. She drank a glass of milk and it came straight back to normal. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Yeah. That's amazing. It is insane. So in your uh, testing, are you going to be testing blood ketone levels too to see just how uh, much uh, ketones are being produced? Absolutely. That's right. Yeah. So we will think we're and we're looking we're looking specifically at the group who taking in more than less than sorry, less than fifty grams of carbohydrate a day. And hopefully we'll get some who are taking twenty grams of carbohydrate a day. Yep. We're yeah. looking at most keto-adapted athletes, and we're looking at the people who, who found that they don't need to take carbohydrate during, during Ironman races. That's awesome. And the next thing, what we're doing next is going to – what really interests me is, is the people who do lots of exercise and who are still fat. Mm-hmm. And, if, <laughs> so, and we, of course, will think that they were carbohydrate intolerant, and we're going to start that group. Uh, when they're eating high-carbohydrate diets and then modif- change them to high-fat diets and see what happens to them. So, it, we, is the hypothesis that they're over-consuming not just carbohydrate but maybe protein? The, 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 yeah, I may well be. But my, my interest is if you watch, we've got this, this incredible race, the Comrades Marathon, which is a 90-kilometer race. It's kind of the defining race in South Africa. And 18 to 20,000 runners a year and most of them finish in the last hour and a half of the race. So, so, that, so that 50% or 9,000 of these runners are not elite athletes, and many of them are overweight, but not, not a little bit overweight. They've got BMI of 29, 30. Right. And they, drink, they eat carbohydrates because Tim Noakes told them that they must eat carbohydrates because it's really good for you. <laughs> and you're an athlete. And if you're an athlete, you need lots of carbohydrate. And I'm convinced from my own experience that they, if they were to eat a high-fat, high-protein diet, they'd lose 15 kilograms and they'd run an hour faster without any effort. And so we wanted to target that group and, and also to find, are they all pre-diabetic as well? And then to contrast that with a lean group whose BMI likes 2021, 20, who probably don't need fat and protein, they may well do better on a carbohydrate diet. Because you know, that's what I'm told. That's what the dietitians tell me, that there are some people who have to have carbohydrates. And that may well be, but we want to find that group. And when we cross them over onto a high-fat diet, they may do worse. In which case, now we've proved that, that there are these two different populations. And some people benefit from a high-carbohydrate diet. But the vast majority of us are carbohydrate intolerant and we'll do much better on a high-fat diet. Mm-hmm. So you now tell people that you're wrong – uh, in your book, The Lore of Running, uh, which had to have been really hard for you uh, because that, that, 
book is highly respected in South Africa as kind of the book on running. And yet you were you were very clear, hey, I was wrong. <laughs> in <laughs> fact, you've told people to rip that chapter out of the book. Uh, that's how uh, how strongly you feel about this. Um, yeah. That particular book, would they let you rewrite that chapter and re-release it? Oh, absolutely. In fact, the the publishers have just released Waterlog, which is my attack on the, the sports drink industry and the way they manipulated the science to over-promote drinking of sports drinks. Right. So right. they've just released that and they've said, now come on to re-revise re Law of Running. <laughs> so yes, that's on my agenda uh, very soon. I'll start rewriting that. And then I'll be able to give a balanced view and put in all this fantastic work on the low-carbohydrate diets. And then it'll be balanced. And and I, I do think that there probably are some people who have to eat a high-carbohydrate diet. Right. I, I haven't seen them yet, but, but I'm sure they're out there. <laughs> so, somewhere. 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 And if they're out there, we'll find them. And, uh, and of course, I'll include that in the, in the book. Absolutely. But I'm looking forward to revising it. But you, you asked the question, you know, the one thing about science is the only thing that, that lives is the truth. You... You can only fool people until you die, and then, then it's gone. You've yeah. got no more friends. And I don't want to be remembered as being the person who, who promoted the wrong idea. And so it's time, if it's wrong, it must come out and it must be rejected, and, and the new information must be put in there. Yeah, and, and I see your story is very similar to Mark Sisson's story. Are you familiar with the work of Mark Sisson? Absolutely. I think he's marvelous. And uh, I say, everyone, just if you want to look fantastic, go and look at Mark. <laughs> <laughs> well, and he was a triathlete and did all of these, you know, great marathon uh, races as well. And and it did it the wrong way and, and was just like you in saying, hey, look, I was wrong. And now here is a way that seems uh, to be a lot more efficient, a lot more natural, a lot more based on our um, uh, hist historical way that we should be eating and, and exercising. Um, you know, you're definitely kind of the Mark Sisson of South Africa, the way I see uh, the work that you're doing. Uh, but you're taking it even one step further because you're also researching and putting out information that's really helping a lot of people. Again, his name is Professor Timothy Noakes. He doesn't really have a website, but we will keep you informed when that brand new version of Lore of Running is out. Uh, the old version, Tim, by the way, is on Amazon right now. So I almost bought one just to see what you wrote uh, originally uh, so we can juxtapose it with your new position that'll be out in your new book. But uh, keep us informed about how the new book is going. I'm sure it's going to be a huge seller, and I would not be surprised if you see some pretty amazing um, international success with it as well. So keep up the great work. Thanks so much. What I must just tell you a couple of things that happened in the last few weeks, yep. which are utterly stunning and I'll start with this, the smaller story and we'll build up to the big ones. I was giving a talk in Port Elizabeth as a small town about a thousand kilometers north of us in South Africa and a guy got up and he said he looked fantastic he said Professor Noakes I'm one of your disciples I want to tell you I was exactly like you I ran many marathons and I ran the Comrades Marathon many times and my running got worse and worse and worse. And it got so bad, I had to stop running. It was just too embarrassing. I couldn't run anymore. He said, I read your ideas about a year and a half ago. I decided to go on the high-fat, high-protein diet. He says, 
I lost 20 kilograms. I'm running 80 kilometers a week now, and I'm running as I did 20 years ago. Now, to me, that is stunning because it means that he might have had a nutritional deficiency like I suspect I might have had on the high-carbohydrate so-called prudent diet. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And that this diet, this diet corrected that or something else, that there's to- something toxic in the diet. But it's almost like a, defi- a nutritional deficiency that that's what happened to me. My running performance suddenly went terrible. And I could never explain it. And then, and I said it was aging, but as soon as I reversed my diet, I was fine. Right, that's the first story. The second story is Bruce Fordas. Bruce Fordas is one of the most iconic runners in South Africa. He won the Comrades Marathon nine times. And he set records which people are still struggling to beat today. He, that he lost one, I think, in the 1990s. And over the last 20 years, his weight has slowly drifted up. He started talking to me a year and a half ago, and he started to cut the sugar, and then he went on a higher, higher reducing his carbohydrate intake. And what happened was he lost six, 17 kilograms, so he dropped his weight from 72 to 55, and his running came back. And he's running, he's now running five kilometers in 18 minutes at wow. altitude, wow. Which and he's 56, and he used to run 15 minutes, so he's only lost and it's his 56. His performances in the Comrades have improved dramatically and it re- had a really good race this year. But, but the real story is the following. There's a guy called Oscar Chalupski in South Africa who's won the Molokai Channel Challenge, which is the world championship in, in canoeing or kayaking, in open sea kayaking. It's between the two islands of, in Hawaii and it's over 50 kilometers of open sea. And it usually takes him about three and a half hours to do. He's won it 11 times against the world's best and many Australia, young Australians. But he hasn't won it for seven years. So he, he comes to see me in November and I say, okay, it's time for you to lose, lose weight, Oscar. You've got to go on the high-fat, high-protein diet. He'd already thought about it because other people had told him he needed it. But now he got committed for three months. He ate no carb and he just ate to the diet. Three weeks ago, they had the race and he's 59 years old and he's competing against Olympic medalists in kayaking. They are the best in the world. They're young Australians. He beats them all. He becomes the oldest world champion in a sport of this nature at 49 in a race that takes three and a half hours is unbelievably demanding and it's considered one of the great performances and this man took no carbohydrates for three months. <laughs> so, wow, wow. Yeah, so that if you, you know, if people come and tell me, oh, you know, you can't run a marathon or whatever, and got to have all these carbs, well, forget it. And, and I'm definitely beginning to believe that as you get older, you just can't afford to eat lots of carbohydrates. You have to dramatically increase your protein and fat intake. I don't know about you, but one of the things that I really missed when I started this low-carb thing way back in 2004 was baked goods. You know, like a muffin. There's just something about that cake texture that's awesomely satisfying to hit the spot. But up until now, it's been off-limits on my low-carb, ketogenic lifestyle. So I was psyched a few weeks back when I first discovered a brand new product called Nush. That's Nush, kind of like Nosh, but with a U. 
Nush cakes are not like so much of the other low-carb stuff already out there, partly because of their wonderful cakey texture. They're not tough or dry or chewy, they're just really flavorful cakes. Nush cakes also happen to be certified organic, certified gluten-free, and super low in sugar and carbohydrates with just two to three net carbs per cake. The Nush people sent me samples of their flavors, including banana nut, lemon poppy seed, cocoa, and carrot spice. I liked the banana nut one the best, but I really like all of them, and I think you will too. Go to nushfoods.com and be sure to enter the coupon code JIMMY at checkout to get 20% off your first order. Again, that's nushfoods.com for the best-tasting, low-carb, baked goods you'll ever taste. Nush Foods. Wouldn't you love to find a nut that is low in carbs, high in fat, and perfect as a healthy ketogenic snack? Well, look no further than Peely Nuts. That's spelled P-I-L-I. Go to eatpeelynuts.com and use the coupon code LLVLC at checkout to get 10% off of your order of these one-of-a-kind keto nuts. Peely Nuts are higher in fat than any other nut out there with a whopping 23 grams of total fat, and they have the fewest carbohydrates at just one gram per one-ounce serving. Plus, these delicious nuts are loaded with a full array of vitamins and micro nutrients, including vitamin E, magnesium, potassium, manganese, calcium, phosphorus, and more because of the mineral-rich volcanic soil that they're harvested from in the Philippines. If you've never tasted a Peely Nut, you'll be pleased to know that it's got a soft bite and a buttery flavor unlike any other nut you've ever put in your mouth. EatPeelyNuts.com is the original company to bring sprouted Peely Nuts to the United States and are also the first to offer them sprouted in coconut oil for added healthy saturated fats. I absolutely love Peely Nuts and I think you will too. Try them for yourself by visiting eatpeelynuts.com and don't forget to use my special coupon code LLVLC at checkout to get 10% off of your order. Give them a taste and you'll see there's no better nut than a Peely Nut. Professor Noakes, welcome back to the show. Thanks, Timmy. Lovely to be back with you and your listeners. Well, man, oh, man, what a year it has been for Tim Noakes. Uh, you have literally kind of exploded on the scene. It seems like every time I turn around, Tim, you're on some, uh, you know, Google article that you've done a TEDx uh, talk or you've done some other talk or you've been quoted in some news story or somebody's trying to discredit you as being a whacked out whatever they think you are. <laughs> you know, I mean, you've heard it all. Uh, tell us a little bit about this journey you've been on. Yeah, well, I think, you know, obviously, you know, Jimmy, I, I started two years ago, almost uh, two years and about 12 days ago. So I'm sort of counting every day. Yep. And I think when I started, of course, I was very concerned. Um, and the very first article I ever wrote called Against the Grains, I was very conservative. And I said, that this will be the most contentious article I ever write in my life. And yep. it was. But things cooled down until December last year. And what happened was a very leading radio commentator phoned me up and he said, Tim, I've read your book, Law of Running, and here you're telling us to drink carbohydrates and eat lots of carbohydrates, and now all of a sudden you're telling us the opposite, so please tell me what's the story. So he did that interview, and that went sort of national. 
And all of a sudden, everyone was interested. And then I did a television show on a program called Carte Blanche, which is a Sunday night television show, which has a very wide audience in South Africa. And at one point, uh, I was given a piece of meat with a big piece of fat on it. And the guy asked me, would you eat the fat? And I said, yes. And that caused fuel because the Heart Foundation of South Africa got up in absolute great anger and started getting very unhappy with me. The problem was the presenter himself had been on the low-carb diet and had lost eight kilograms. Wow. And and he's in everyone's face every Sunday evening. So that was another point that, that was important. So I think that was really the start. And then the... I got a lot of invitations to go and speak all around the country. I spoke a lot in Cape Town. Eventually, my son got me onto Twitter, and, and I was very cautious to start it. I didn't know what it was about, and then kind of learned how, how it works. And what I, I benefited because I've learned so much. I, I couldn't believe that this is one of the most powerful tools for learning. Yes. That, that I could be getting articles the day they were published, whereas before I would have to go to the library or go on the internet and maybe would only discover them five, six months after they'd been published. But now, by following the leading names in the field, I was getting these articles as they were published. So that was really interesting. And I've, I've really taken a lot of slack, which, which I didn't expect in my naivety. Yeah. And I think every major South African organization that's supposedly promoting South African health has at one time during the past year said that the next diet, which they called it the next diet, which of course it's not, right. it's the it's Banting Harvey or whichever diet you like to call it. And they said that this is dangerous and South Africans who are on the diet should immediately stop because it's dangerous for them. So the Heart Foundation has said that. The Health Professionals Council of South Africa has said that the the South African Dietetics Association has said it and the Diabetes Association has said it so the four major organizations have all said I'm wrong and warned the public against the diet and then the final (laughs) (laughs) you've arrived it's astonishing it's astonishing the bad evidence they use to sort of say what I'm saying is dangerous and it's astonished me how how close-minded they are and how they can't see see the truth but I think the, the, the most the most demanding for me emotionally was my university sort of weren't quite certain about me certainly my medical faculty weren't and the irony was that I, I won the major South African Science Award this past year called the National Research Foundation Lifetime Achievement Award the day I won it a letter appeared in the local newspaper in Cape Town uh, castigating me and it was written by six top cardiologists in Cape Town wow <laughs> the very, so, and no one it was when I won the award like no one took any notice it was as if my university was trying to distance itself from me yeah or at least my faculty. So anyway, as a result of that, there was a whole bunch of letters to the newspapers, and in the dean, my own dean came out and said that that the university would not be changing anything that it did because it didn't believe this evidence. So anyway, the, the faculty... 
the fact the fact they organized a, a, a debate and they flew in a, a leading scientist from America who was a South African who headed up the Women's Health Initiative and uh, he was flown out and on July oh, on December the 6th we had a debate I saw that and it uh, it wasn't it wasn't it wasn't pleasant for me uh, for a number of reasons and because it was clear that that uh, that there was there was something else going on behind the scenes which I couldn't quite pick out hmm. and I wasn't given a fair hearing I don't think anyway uh, the point was they didn't they didn't decimate me and they didn't bury me and the the story continues Tim, and I think it's only going to gather more 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 in the future what do you think the fear is why is there such vehement op- opposition not just opposition to an idea but even to the point of wanting to smear your good name in the process of opposing you. Yeah, it's very difficult for me to understand that because as I understand science and, and medical and medicine, you should be open to all suggestions and clearly there are there are people who find this inconvenient and I don't quite know where the where the pressure is coming from for that inconvenience. I understand that there are huge economic factors that we're dealing with and that if we if the world was to change and we would cut out carbohydrates there would be many businesses that would go to the wall. The pharmaceutical industry would be severely severely ravaged. I understand that. But within my own profession and the own academics in my in my faculty, I don't understand it. And it has to be ego. It has to be concern that someone's getting perhaps some publicity or that they have been doing something that is wrong and they're not prepared to admit it. I mean, the whole point was that this started with me saying I'm wrong. I said I'm wrong about carbohydrates. That's right. And and it's it's sad that other people can't get up and say we're also wrong. I mean, I think the worst moment in the whole debate was I was jeered by my, my faculty or members of the faculty because one of the, the diabetologists, in other words, the lady who treats all the diabetics, she attacked me for measuring my blood glucose regularly during the day. <laughs> <laughs> and, and she said I was a pawn for the industry selling glucometers and testing strips. Wow. And I, I thought that I thought, now that's really odd. And in fact, it wasn't even a question. And the the, the person who was in charge didn't point out that she hadn't asked the question. She just attacked me directly. And I, and I think I know that our, our nutritional sciences at the university are completely opposed to everything I say. Mm-hmm. And are not open to, to any suggestion otherwise. So how do we reach those people? I mean, are, are we just going to have to wait till that generation dies off and have a new generation of noxites that will be, uh, you know, so to speak, believe in, in what you're talking about before this thing will get turned around? Yeah, I think Neil Bohr said that said it best, and he said science evolves funerals from, from one funeral to the next, wow. and that that's what happens. Yeah, um, we just have to get rid of these the people who are teaching it. You see, I, when I opened my di- my discussion, I said, "Are we teaching science or religion?" Mm. And I learned that from from Barry Marshall, who won the Nobel Prize for discovering that Helicobacter causes gastric ulcers, and when he was he was able to prove it. It took 10 years before it became accepted practice, and during that time, he would ask people, 
is gastroenterology a religion or a science? Wow. And that, that was his opinion. And, and in a sense, that's my opinion because I can't get these people to see the logic. And, and what was really interesting was that in the debate, I, I was forewarned that I had to look at the Women's Health Initiative very carefully and that I had to look at the report in JAMA, I think it's 2006, 2007, because there was information there that was hidden and it was never exposed to the American public. And it, in that paper, there is a single line saying that women, postmenopausal women, who changed their diet, in other words, they went from eating more fat to eating the prudent low-fat diet. Right. If they had heart disease at the start of the trial, they did worse, significantly worse. The odds ratio went up to 1.3. They did significantly worse than women who stayed on the traditional diet. In other words, the traditionalists had a higher fat diet. Right. Now, and in the table at the back of the page, on the table on page three, uh, there's table three, there's, um, there's, there's something wrong with the table. And the author was actually the guy I was debating. And all he could say was, oh, there must have been a printer's error. <laughs> but the point is, that error on table three has never been corrected wow. in, in the six years since the paper was published. And the reason they can't correct it is because if they do, they will draw attention to the fact that the Women's Health Initiative proved that the prudent diet is bad for people who have heart disease. Yep. And and no one has has reported that. And I was able to go back to the internet and find the head of the the, the National Institute of Health. And, and when she she lauded this, this this study and said, "Oh, it failed because the women didn't drop their fat intake enough." <laughs> but the irony was, I mean, sorry, but no one dared mention that the women who did drop their fat intake, if they had heart disease, did significantly worse. And that is the only significant finding in the whole study. Wow. And it's got hidden from the American public. And then I was able to show that the next study from the Women's Health Initiative shows that the same applies to diabetics, that the diabetics in the trial who were diabetic at the start and who changed their diet, reduced their fat intake, did worse. And it said that glucose control got worse. And that was not reported. So the Women's Health Initiative, where I was able to show, disproved the statements that, of my colleague who I was debating with because he was saying the prudent diet is healthy for everyone. And his own data disproved it. And, and tragically, the person who was running the debate didn't make that point. And in his summary, he came out against my, me, saying I was the one who was unscientific. Hmm. Sound like an ambush. <laughs> it, was, it was quite an ambush. Hmm. But, but also, you know, the, the study about the, the Women's Health Initiative and the diabetics is really interesting because it's written in 2011, it's published in 2011, and it starts with a statement that to the effect that high-carbohydrate diets may impair glucose tolerance. It doesn't say high-carbohydrate diets improve glucose tolerance. Right. It says they might impair glucose tolerance. And the whole article is completely defensive. It's defending the high-carbohydrate diet as not being worse than some other diet. Not, they don't even address the question whether it's better. Right. They're saying it's not worse. And they conclude that it's, for people who are healthy, it's not worse 
than a higher fat diet. But for diabetics, it is worse. Mm-hmm. But it's, it's really astonishing that this study, which was set out to prove that the prudent diet makes people with heart disease better and diabetics better, proved the opposite. And only in 2011 did the authors begin to acknowledge that. Oh, you're just trying to sell glucometers. What do you get real? <laughs> <laughs> wow. So, but if I could contrast that, yes. you know, I gave I gave an, a vice chancellor's lecture at another university. The vice chancellor is that um, he's a head person running the university in, in in this country. I'm not sure what what they would call it. Maybe the provost or something in American universities. But I gave. I gave sort of the named lecture at another university, and for an hour and a half, the audience was spellbound. And one guy wrote, he said that completely changed his life, watching that that talk. And of course, it completely undermined the the, the theory that high-carbohydrate diets are healthy. So at the one level, in the general public, it seems to me that we're gaining purchase in South Africa. But in the academics are, are putting down their heels, and it looks like they're going to take a long time to change. Why don't you tell us about the TEDx talk that happened in August? Uh, it's called Challenging Beliefs. We'll certainly provide a link so people can watch it. It's only 15 minutes long, but uh, uh, tell us how that went over. Yes, thank you. That went extremely well. That was, in a sense, a review of my book, Challenging Beliefs, and I took four or five of the ideas that I've had in my life in which I have challenged, and I could only in 15 minutes address a few of them, but uh, I went through each of them, and the ones that I looked at were particularly, I ended up with uh, the carbohydrate diet and the the high-carbohydrate diet is healthy and kind of disproved that. The one that I focused on perhaps a little bit more was the the theory about waterlogged, that if you drink, what I was able to overturn, the idea that drinking a lot during exercise is healthy, and I spoke about my 30-year work on that topic, which started in June 1981, when I received this letter from the lady who had developed hypernatremia, that's a low blood sodium concentration in the Comrades Marathon, that's a 90 kilometer race in South Africa, and she was the first case, and she asked what happened, and I said, absolutely no idea. And it took us about 10 years to solve the problem. So in 1991, we published a definitive paper explaining that it was purely drinking too much that caused the problem, and that it got nothing to do with salt losses, but unfortunately that came out at just the moment when the sports drink industry was really taking off in the United States, and they didn't want it's an African saying, you know, you mustn't drink a lot during exercise. And what I learned from that was that how industry manipulates scientists without the scientists even knowing that they thought they were doing really good science, but it was so biased that it, it could only come to one conclusion that drinking was good. And those guys completely ignored the 90% of the evidence which was which conflicted with what they believed. And then these were the people who industry made sure drew up the drinking guidelines in the 1990s. And they, they were biased because they... 
they just couldn't see the truth that that they were being directed by industry to produce guidelines that were beneficial to to industry. And it was only in 2007 that the American College of Sports Medicine finally reversed the guidelines and said that I'd been right all along and that drinking too first was appropriate. The problem was that they killed, or should I say 13 people died as a consequence of that. And we know that about 2,500 people were hospitalized from this condition. I didn't know it was that many in my book. I only list about 1,600. But the U.S. military earlier this year reported something like 1,500 cases in the military alone. Wow. So that, if you, and that, they've got good surveillance. So that, that probably is a very accurate number that you can see that probably 10,000 people globally had this condition and were hospitalized for something that was completely unnecessary. Mm -hmm. So what that taught me was how industry manipulates scientists and the scientists, they demonize me. And I always knew that we would win because industry tried to control all the scientific publications. And they did that by putting their own scientists on the senior positions of the journals. So they made sure that all the major scientific journals in sports medicine had their key people were on the editorial board. Maybe they didn't manipulate it. Maybe it was just by chance, but that was the reality. Mm. But there were two journals where it didn't happen. And the one was the Canadian Journal of Sports Medicine. The other was the British Journal of Sports Medicine. And they were completely independent. And, and I knew if we did good science and we could publish it in those journals, eventually the message would come out. Mm-hmm. And it took, it took 30 years, but eventually it did come out. And I wrote the book Waterlogged, which, which describes the whole debate. And so if anyone says I'm a demon or I'm a crack or whatever, they may have to argue that that book is wrong. And they have to go through that book and say, well, this is wrong and that's wrong and it's wrong for these reasons. Yeah. And anyone is welcome to go and write another book which would contradict everything I've written. But until they do that, that happens to be the truth. And I learned that that's the only way we could ever turn turn science and make people realize, make the general public realize what the truth is. And if I can continue on that line, mm-hmm. what was was really exciting was that in July the British British Medical Journal, which is probably the top European medical journal right. outside of North America, it had a whole series on on sports drinks and this whole drinking debacle, right. and it strongly supported what I've been saying. And it was lovely to see that information now getting through to to, to medicine and uh, and 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 confirming what I've been saying. So that was the uh, another point that that I raised in the in the debate. The other one, which which I'm really proud of, mm-hmm. in South African terms, and it, it really I was influenced by America because of you had terrible neck injuries in American football. And and the key to American football was you got incredible statistics, and so that when the problem arose, the Americans did something about it immediately. Right. And so, so neck injuries has never been a major problem. I understand concussion is a huge problem now, but but neck injuries were stopped. But in this country, they took off in the 1980s, and I was the first guy to say this is not acceptable. And I was demonized for for about ten or fifteen years, and today the there's I think rugby organizations having rugby union funds research into neck injuries and has a separate division that looks after neck injuries and the prevention and the management. Wow. 
and and they are and the, our organisation won a major international award for this work, and so it was really exciting that that what I was demonised for in the 1980s is now kind of it's, it's accepted. This is the way it is. Well, and, and the analogy I, I draw from both of those is that I'm writing a book now on on this diet, and and you know I mean there, I know there are some the brilliant books out there, but for the South African market there isn't, and right. and I'm putting down my marker like I did in Waterlog and I said this is what low carbohydrate eating is all about and this is the science now go and don't tell me there's no science because that's the argument I always get there's no science behind it yeah well, and do you think part of the struggle with that, uh, Tim, is that you are an exercise and sports scientist and not a nutritionist, not a medical doctor, not someone with the so-called credentials to yeah. be able to write something yeah. like that? Yeah, I am actually a medical doctor, but I know what you mean. I don't practice medicine, or I do practice, but only in a very limited way. But, you know, the interesting reality is, and this is one of my colleagues in sports medicine said, they, he said that, in fact, sports medicine doctors are one of the few doctors who remain as generalists. <laughs> Although we're specialists, we're generalists. The cardiologist deals all the day with coronary arteries and stents and statins and that's it. Right. They have no concept of how the rest of the body works and they don't need to know. And so that, whereas we, as sports medicine people, we have to know how the whole body works. So you have to know biochemistry and your physiology right. and you have to know the history of how humans evolved as runners and what they ate and so we we bring in anthropology and paleontology and all these things so that if you don't understand all of those things you can't ever understand nutrition properly and so, so that's I think where we have this huge advantage and of course we treat patients which which, which is remarkable because we actually get to see what happens when these patients change their diets. And, and I think that is the most compelling thing. If you, it, it's a miracle if a patient's diabetes is cured under your eyes by this diet. Yeah. One of the, one of the better video clips, which I um, hope you'll be able to refer to, is uh, Dr. Shondi, and it's on the skinny, and I don't know quite how you can find it, but maybe you can link and find it. But he wrote to me, and when I was really being pressurized by the cardiologist, and in fact wrote to like a newspaper, but he written to me first, and he said, Dr. Max, I saw you on the Carte Blanche program, and I immediately realized I've got carbohydrate intolerance. I weighed 120 kilograms. I was being treated for diabetes, obesity, hypertension, hypercholesterolemia, sleep apnea, and gout. And in addition, I had atrial fibrillation. Wow. And he said I was medicated for all of them. He said four months later, I weigh 100 kilograms. Every, all my medications have gone. He says it's a miracle. Now, this is a medical doctor who, in his interview, he says at 57, he was 57, he said, I told my wife, I don't think I'm going to live beyond 65. He says, my medical condition is so severe, I must warn you, I'm going to be dead by 65. And he said it has changed his medical practice because now when an obese person with hypertension, diabetes comes through the, comes through the door, he can say to them, like, there are two options. We can go the drug route, or we can do the high-fat, low-carbohydrate diet route, or we can do both. Which do you choose? And he said his whole family now have 
changed as well. Wow. And eventually that the whole city, because he's a general practitioner for a small town just outside Cape Town, that's going to influence the whole town. And, and it's interesting in South Africa, maybe the same in, in the United States, that the small towns are much easier to turn than the big towns because oh, yeah. it just takes one doctor or a diabetic nurse or something, someone who, who becomes evangelical and then they can change everyone's opinion in the city. Well, and even a small country like what's happening in Sweden and, and various other parts of the world, you know, it doesn't take much. And I, I did a trip to Australia in November, um, and, and those people there, man, they are on fire for this, um, really wanting to learn more. And I think, yeah, if you can smart a, or start a small revolution, you know, in a smaller country or, or a smaller town, you know, it spreads and people want to be a part of something that's actually working and not the same old, same old. Exactly, and and that's what I I try to tell the students now when they if they get angry. I said, you know, in ten years time, there only be two types of doctors: those who prescribe pills and those who prescribe cures. And patients are simply not going to go to the doctors who are prescribing pills anymore. They want the cures, and they will find out who's curing them by going on the internet and looking at your website and things like that. And that's where medicine is going to change dramatically. Absolutely. My own attitude to medicine has changed unbelievably in the last two years. Because if you'd asked me this time two years ago, I would have said that, first I would have said that exercise is the main cure for your health. And, and nutrition's got very little to do with it. And I would have said that all diseases have, that the, the way I've been taught, that they have a cure which is through the pharmaceutical industry. And now I believe the completely opposite, I believe that 80% of your health is due to nutrition, 20% is is exercise. Exercise is crucially important. You're not going to deny it, but it's not as important as your nutrition because I learned from my own experience that my ex- all my exercise couldn't prevent my my problems. And this year, I've shown I've advised a whole bunch of athletes. I don't know if we discussed Oscar Chalupski. I'm, I'm sure we didn't. He's my most successful case, and I'll, I'd just love to spend a bit of time on him. Sure, please do. I, Oscar has won the race, the Molokai Challenge, which is between two Hawaiian islands, and it's an, it's a 50-kilometer kayaking open sea kayak race. He's won it 11 times, but he's 49 now, and he hadn't won it for six years. And this is the World Championships, and all the top American, the top Australian kayakers go there. And as I've indicated, he'd won it 11 times, and he came to see me in December a year ago, and he said, Tim, I've won it 11 times. I have to win it before I turn 50. I've got to win it one more time. But he said, I'm terribly overweight. And he was, because <laughs> he's profoundly carbohydrate intolerant. And so I said, okay, Oscar, it's time for the high-fat diet. So we put him on the high-fat diet in December. He lost 16 kilograms. Wow. And but this is a guy, remember, he trains two to three hours a day. And he's been training that way all his life. But yet he couldn't control his body weight. He gets to the start in Hawaii. And he looks around. And there are all these young Americans and all these young Australians. Many of them are world champions at other distances. And including medalists in the Olympic Games. To 24,000 strokes later, he wins the race by 19 seconds at the age of 49. Wow. He's one of the greatest performances by an old man <laughs> in a world championship. <laughs> and, and he was absolutely astonished because 
designed just so that that firstly how effective it is in in losing weight, but you don't lose your performance. Exactly. And the fact that despite all his exercise for 49 years, he couldn't regulate his weight. And again, showing that that diet is far more important in weight control than than exercise. Well, and he had so many more calories worth of energy being in a keto-adapted state than he ever would have been as a sugar burner. Precisely, and, and that's that's a point that, that many of us don't understand. And, and I, <laughs> There's another very similar story was a, a diabetic wrote to me and he said, are you telling me you know more about my disease than the experts in Cape Town? I've been treated by such and such for 15 years and he's the world authority, etc. What do you know? <laughs> so I wrote back to him. He, it was an email. I sent an email back in about two hours. He said he didn't expect to get an email. I said, well, you know, all I can tell you is that there's a lot of evidence that a, that a high-fat diet will help you. Mm-hmm. And he wrote back and he said, you know, actually I'm having trouble exercising. And because of that, I told him why, because exactly the point you made, just, just right there. And as a consequence, he slipped and he, he sent me an email today and he said he's now been going 100 days. Wow. Everything has improved. Everything is perfect now. Everything is correct. His insulin requirements are way down. And he asked the doctors, you know, please can you explain why do you continue to tell us that you have to eat a high carbohydrate diet when this is what happened to me? Everything has got better. Because he's independent, he still needs some insulin. But everything's improved. Right. And his general practitioner says it's got nothing to do with the low carbohydrate diet he's eating. It's just by chance that he got better the day he went on the low carbohydrate diet. Incredible, incredible. Yeah, you know, I've been doing my own experimentation, kind of pushing the limits of this uh, ketogenic nutritional ketosis experiment I've been doing, uh, where I went from, uh, you know, a certain amount of, of carbohydrate intake, certain amount of protein intake, certain amount of fat intake, and I kind of shifted it, you know, almost to the nth degree just to see how fat adapted I could become, Professor Noakes. And it's been amazing because despite a lower amount of protein, much higher amount of fat, and obviously very low carb intake, I was putting on muscle, I was having you know great performance, great mental clarity, all of these things have improved for me. Um, you know, doing a diet that most doctors would look at you and say, you're going to kill yourself doing that. No, it's amazing. Uh, you, you know, I've watched Steve Finney on him, he's on, because he also, I didn't realize he ate the high fat diet as well. Yep. But I must tell you my own experience. Uh, I eventually decided that I needed to check my glucose more regularly and discovered that on high I was eating far too much protein and couldn't regulate my blood glucose with that protein. Yep. And then I've also done exactly as you've done. I've gone much more towards the fat. And my glucose is much better controlled. And I've decided I am diabetic and I am treating myself now for type 2 diabetes. And I'm going to get my glucose under complete control. And I will find out what it takes. But in my case, it, again, it was the protein was, I was eating far too much protein. And so now I've followed your advice and I'm eating much more more fat and the results have been dramatic I lost another two kilograms my glucose control is much much better and my running remains good so I'm 
Uh, I'm absolutely convinced that you're right. And, and I've helped a lot of other people who, because I didn't understand it, and, and Steve Finney explained exactly why. He says, when you start on the start, you can eat a lot of protein because your fat, you're burning so much fat yep. that it's still, the, the protein that you burn is relatively little, but then as you lose more and more weight, you most of your energy is being burned from what you're eating and if it's protein then that's going to cause a problem because you can have a high insulin concentration and so on that's right and so I began to understand why once you keto adapted or sorry once you've lost the weight you have to cut the protein and not just the carbohydrate you also have to cut the protein so that was a novel discovery for me and uh, I'll be following your experiment as well with great interest well and it's been really neat too kind of looking at trends and I know um, you're obviously very familiar with testing blood ketones from reading the Finney books, and I've been doing that day and night for over seven months now. And it's amazing when the blood ketones tend to be lower, my blood sugar tends to be higher. Um, and, and the inverse is true. When I have blood ketones above 2.0 millimolar, I'm seeing blood sugar levels that are completely normal. Um, it's just amazing the relationship between these. And if people just got out the little meter and just checked for themselves, they wouldn't have the, the heartache and pain of, okay, why isn't this working? Yeah. You know, if I come back to my to my debate, uh, what I showed there was that your blood glucose concentration, it doesn't matter whether it's random or fasting, is the best predictor of your long-term life expectancy and health. And yep. it's absolutely clear that cholesterol is such a poor predictor of your of your risk for heart disease and your life expectancy that it's almost useless. But glucose is unbelievable. And there was a study in the middle of the year that even in the normal range, the glucose concentration, if it's up to the upper end of normal 5.0, you 5.1, already your risk of heart disease is 1.5. It's 50% higher than if your value is below 4.5. Mm-hmm. So we should all be aiming for glucose of 4.5 all the time. Sorry, I'm speaking in, in our terms. Right. Think, yeah, we should be aiming for around 82 uh, nanograms per deciliter. Yeah. And uh, and no one ever tells you that. You know, if you've got five, they'll say, well, that's fine. Yeah. There's, there's a lovely tape I picked up two days ago, which is coming out in, in neurosciences, nature neurosciences, which shows that the control mechanisms for glucose homeostasis are exactly the same as the control mechanisms for energy expenditure and energy, sorry, energy intake. So the two are absolutely linked. And as soon as you get an abnormality in either it indicates an abnormality in the other. So if your glucose metabolism is wrong, your nutrient, your energy intake and energy expenditure will be all wrong, and vice versa. So the two are absolutely linked. And so again, it tells us that you've got to regulate your glucose metabolism. That's what we have to be measuring if we're going to be perfectly healthy. And that's what you were talking about in a letter to the editor that you wrote in response to those uh, academics you talked about earlier that uh, really wrote a nasty <laughs> letter to the editor there in Cape Town, uh, the Cape Times, um, what yeah. they call you, Noakes Goes Too Far. So uh, you decided to uh, to respond to them. Will you tell us a little bit about how you responded and uh, what you brought to the table as far as challenging them on what they were saying? Well, what they say, of course, is that this is, I'm, I'm sure the messaging is the same in the United States as it is in South Africa. In Cape Town, if you're a general practitioner, the only thing you screen for in a patient is the blood total cholesterol 
concentration. And if it's about five, they don't start the anti-cholesterol drugs immediately. That's it. It doesn't matter age, gender, anything, which of course is wrong because age and gender have huge implications and whether you've got disease, whether you should be on statins or not. But the industry has been so successful in South Africa that there's only one number a general practitioner has to know, and that's five millimolar. And as soon as it's that, that would be 200 or 210, I think, milligrams for death that. So, but as soon as you're over that value, you're onto statins. And that's what these guys teach, and they teach it right from the medical school, the cardiologist, professor of cardiology, who was the guy who attacked me. So I made the point that actually glucose is a much better predictor of your risk. But I also said that there are at least 10 factors in blood which you really need to measure if you want to know what your risk is. And cholesterol is probably the weakest of them all. Right. But the other point that I've learned from Volek and Finney, brilliant, brilliant work. I mean, it just is such astonishing work that, that all these 10 risk factors move together. So if we start from the top glucose and insulin and HbA1c and HDL cholesterol and triglycerides, they all move in concert. The better the better your health, the lower your glucose, the lower your insulin, the lower your HbA1c, the higher your HDL and the lower your triglycerides. So if you want to look for your health, those are the five factors you should be looking at. Yep. And, and if you want to look at LDL cholesterol, I mean, everyone knows this, it's LDL particle size that, or number that you should be looking at which we don't even measure in South Africa. So my point of my letter was that if you really want to know what your health is like, you need to screen for all those areas plus the C-reactive protein. And if they're in good shape, then you're carbohydrate tolerant and you're probably okay eating the diet that you're eating. But if any of them are out of kilter, they'll all be out of kilter together. And the only way you can correct all of them is by going on the high-fat, low-carbohydrate diet and understanding that you're carbohydrate intolerant. And so that was a major theme of the debate that I presented, that there are these five or ten blood risk factors. They all move in concert and they all improve on a high-fat diet, which is the exact opposite of what the cardiologists tell us. Now you add in high blood pressure as well and obesity, so you've got another two risk factors, and they're all moving in the same direction, i.e. they get better on a high-fat diet and they get worse on a low, on a high-carbohydrate diet. And then we have cardiologists telling us, no, we mustn't eat the diet that will correct all our risk factors. Doesn't make sense to me. It is pretty amazing. I know uh, Volick and uh, another gentleman who does a lot of carbohydrate restriction research, Dr. Um, Richard Feynman, did a study way long time ago where they, they looked at the symptoms of metabolic syndrome, all those things that you were just talking about, and then they looked at everything that got better with carbohydrate restriction. And guess what, Professor Noakes? They're exactly the same list. <laughs> Exactly. It's pretty amazing. You know, that was the other point um, I made that, you know, we know what caused obesity and we know what caused the metabolic syndrome. And in the debate that we had at the university, the people got up and said that that this carbohydrate resistance either doesn't exist or it exists in so few people it's irrelevant. And I just thought, you know, where do we start with these people? And by the way, I discovered a pediatrician in Cape Town came to see me and he said, you know, I'm fed up. For 15 years, I've been treating obese children and they've been going to normal dietetics advice. It doesn't work. 
we've got to do something. And he's going to start doing a PhD with me. But he sent me an article from the British Medical Journal, 1973, mm-hmm. saying that in the majority of these kids that were studied, they were all carbohydrate intolerant. And now all of a sudden, we've forgotten about that. So my frustration is that we know what causes obesity. We know what causes the metabolic syndrome. The biology is very simple. The sociology is complex. Of course it's complex. It's not to correct, but if you want to focus on the biology, it's simple to correct these diseases. And what happens is the biologists are getting confused because they're saying the sociology is complex, therefore we can't do it. And if they just focus on the biology, and that's a message that I think Svolek and Finney have been so good at getting out and Gary talked, that we've got to focus on the biology because the biology is simple. And then we've got to get the sociology to support the biology, the biological explanation. Yeah. And then we can start solving the problem. Yeah. His name is Professor Tim Noakes. Check him out on Twitter, twitter.com slash Tim Noakes. That's T-I-M-N-O-A-K-E-S. And before I let you go, and by the way, congratulations for being voted back for Encore Week. Uh, I've had uh, hundreds of people on, and you were in the top five, so that's awesome. <laughs> so, um, well, so, thank you very much. You're very um, Yes, I take special pride in that because not being an American, it means it's, it's special to be uh, in a different country to be recognized. And uh, thank you very much. Well, I think it's a testimony to the impact that you're having in your country. And, and we desperately are seeking that in America while we have Gary Tobbs and Jeff Fullick and Steve Finney and people that you look up to. You know, when you're the lonely wolf in your country, it, it really <laughs> it, it kind of gives you a, a courageous look and people admire that well thank you very much because there are times you know people have said to me do you think you can survive all of this <laughs> and I said I'm a marathon runner you know I just keep go. going till we cross the finish line no pain no gain <laughs> so when is your book coming out well, Jimmy, I'm, I'm going to work really hard for the next six months, and hopefully, you know, by the end of next year, um, I'm hoping it should be done by then. I mean, it'll be well done. Sure. My problem is, the more I read, of course, I get down to now, it becomes a law of running, or it becomes a waterlogged. Yes. And the publishers don't want that. They want a brief synopsis. Yes. But my, I want to put all the evidence in, so I'll, we're just going to have to meet somewhere in between. Yeah. Well, you're going to do it right, and, and we're confident that you're going to do it right. Thank you very much for that. <laughs> Absolutely. Well, thank you so much for joining us again here today on the Live in La Vida Low Carb Show. It's been my privilege, Jimmy. I really appreciate you inviting me. Thanks so much. Coming up next time on the Live in La Vida Low Carb Show, we'll have the author of a book entitled The Salt Fix. His name, Dr. James Antonio. Get show notes for today's episode at theliveinlowcarbshow.com. And if you like what you hear, leave us a review at iTunes. Thanks for listening to the Live in La Vida Low Carb Show. We'll see you next time. Thank you.